0: I'm Scott, I'm Bill, and And we're we're the trade guys. Guys. You're listening to the trade guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS trade guys. Next on the trade guys, we'll talk G7, bipartisan innovation, and UK steel. Stay tuned. Here come the trade guys. Trey, guys, we're just off the G7 meeting in Germany this past week, where they advanced discussions in two predictable areas, Russia and climate change. One of the earliest outcomes of the summit was a ban on Russian gold. Is this consequential? I don't think
1: so. First, Russia is a gold exporter, roughly $15 billion a year of gold exports. But when you translate that to barrels of oil, that's about two weeks worth of Russia's crude oil production. So their gold exports pale in comparison to the hydrocarbon side. Russia does export a lot of minerals that are used, but gold in particular, I don't think the ban will do much, mostly because Russia is accumulating gold reserves now and has a trade surplus. So the fact that they can't sell it in G7 countries, I, I think is inconsequential. It probably doesn't hurt anybody, certainly the pot price of gold didn't change as a result of it, so at least not materially. I think it's a gesture without much effect, and importantly, it's no more harmful to the g seven members or to NATO than previous sanctions have been, many of which have seemed to have backfired. Bill have any opinion on Russian gold?
2: No, I think Scott's right. I was trying to think of whether it would have any impact on their ability to pay their debt but we've already pushed them into default. You know, they defaulted over last weekend.
0: Yeah, $100 right?
2: And I don't think this will make a lot of difference. The more interesting one that I've been wrestling with, because I don't know the answer, is the oil price cap suggestion.
0: Right, and so that that oil price cap was a possibility, but it didn't ultimately materialize. Can you guys walk us through what a cap on oil prices coming from the G7
2: would look like? Well, nobody knows. I think that's (laughs) one of the reasons... Why it didn't materialize, it's very complicated and there were different proposals. One was to just cap Russia. Then Macron complicated things by suggesting that it needed to be a global cap, which from an economic perspective is probably right, although much harder to accomplish because then you've got to line up everybody. Right now, I think people were struggling with trying to figure out not only how it would work, but how it might play out and how would the Russians react? You know, Would they react by withholding oil from the market, which would cause prices to go up even farther, or at least withhold oil from the countries that were putting in a cap? That would probably push the price up farther. And if India and China, who are the big buyers right now of Russian oil, weren't cooperating and were continuing to get a discount, which I think has been about 35%, They'd be winners. Russia probably wouldn't be affected, and there'd be a bunch of uh, countries with even tighter oil markets than, than there are now. On the other hand, you know, could you entice China and, and India into doing it? It seemed to me, if cap you set is lower than the discount prices they're paying now, then basically you're offering them a deal and saying you can get your oil even cheaper if you play the game. I don't know whether they'd be willing to do that or not. It's not all about economics, as as you know, it's about politics. With India, it might be about economics, but with China, it's not entirely about economics so i'm I'm just not sure that it would work and if you don't have them involved, it's very hard for me to see how it would affect it yeah, I'm with Bill. I tried to take this seriously,
1: mostly because Secretary of Treasury Yellen put her personal credibility behind it. yeah, this was her idea, wasn't it and she's not she's not crazy, she's not stupid what what am I missing here and frankly, I couldn't figure out what I was missing, because I'm with Bill. You either have to have big purchasers of Russian oil now, read that India and China, participate in some way, or Russia itself has to cooperate. This is the thing is currently Russia's marginal cost of production, if I understand it, is about $10 a barrel. So anything above $10 a barrel crude price is basically profitable for Russia, which means they've got huge flexibility at the moment. And for Russia, their obvious first move would not be to cooperate. It would be to limit their exports, which would be looking at probably $200 a barrel of oil. I would also point out that while we want this buyer's cartel, Europe is still buying oil. Most importantly, Hungary got an exception. They're still buying oil delivered via pipeline from Russia. And so they'd have to go back and sort that out. So the whole thing doesn't hold together. The most disappointing feature for me, though, is that they were trying to do something on the demand side while ignoring the real problem is supply. We talked last week about the lack of capital for a number of years in the US is constraining supply, but so is regulatory actions by the Biden administration. So are the disincentives that are being created for for further production. I would just note that both the United Kingdom and the United States have proven reserves that could be with the right investment and the right regulatory framework put into production Not immediately, but enough to affect the price of oil in the medium and long term. The U.K. has a windfall profits tax and they're not exploring anymore in the North Sea. And the U.S. has basically taken large areas where there are known reserves offline. And there's yet another action in the Permian Basin that's reported on today about EPA restrictions that would limit the single largest reservoir of oil and gas in the continental U.S and restrict production there. So we're not dealing with the supply, and I can't figure out how Secretary Yellen's demand-side cartel works. So it's a mystery.
2: The other dilemma you're running into here is the, the everything is related to everything else problem. Because if you're going to promote increased fossil fuel production for the reason Scott said, then you run headlong into your climate objectives and your effort to decarbonize the economy. And I guess the question that, that I'd ask back to Scott is, if you're going to go for enhanced fossil fuel production, as you said, that's not immediate play. It's a medium to long-term play. But so is decarbonization. So which is faster, converting to solar, converting to wind, or trying to find more oil in the North Sea? Well, look, I think that the
1: geopolitics ought to be the driver. And national security is a vitally important issue. And you've got to be prosperous enough and secure enough to be able to manage your energy transition whenever you do that. More importantly, if there's a climate club formed by the G7, the first order of business ought to be to understand why Germany, which supposedly had the model for moving through the energy transition to a a glorious future of wind and solar, is now reopening their coal-fired power plants in order to, to not be cold and dark in the next winter. So it looks to me like German model their test market was a colossal failure, and they're now reverting to high carbon forms of energy just to be able to manage their geopolitical problems associated with wind and solar. So there's a lot to sort out here, and it definitely is either or. But personally, I I would prefer geopolitical strength versus achieving what some goals that we'd like to achieve in the foreseeable future. Well, so let me ask you guys. You know, as you brought up, another
0: major milestone from the G seven was the creation of a so-called climate club. What exactly is a climate club and how does it impact trade?
2: Well, it's a like many things in the G seven, it's not well defined. It's it's <laughs> there's going to be several different pillars. The decarbonization pillar is is one. It's basically an effort to cooperate amongst countries that account for a substantial portion of, of global emissions. You know, these are big developed economies, although China is not in the G7. So right away you're excluding a big chunk. And so neither is India. So you're also excluding a big chunk there. But we're talking about the developed economies. It's a decarbonization and initiative. And I think it really depends if countries are going to cooperate on that. I think in the end it depends on all of them accepting the idea that there needs to be a price on carbon. I mean, the EU has sort of accepted that concept and they have an emissions trading system that basically forces companies that are emitters to pay for their emissions and it gives them an incentive to reduce the emissions in order to save money and make their products cheaper. The debate in the United States about that has not gone that far, and we're not at the stage so far, I don't think we're having a price on carbon is politically acceptable. Uh, And the administration has been clear that it's not pushing for one right now. And that's led to a very complicated conversation that's going to be, you know, one of the first things the climate club talks about, which is, can you have a climate club where one or more of the members don't put a price on carbon, but attempt to decarbonize through regulation rather than through the market? I I think Bill's onto something that's
1: actually quite important of this, which is... This is an agreement to work together to avoid trade spats over climate change, All right, And if, to the extent there can be cooperative work, even, even cooperation on standards and equivalency, I think that's time well spent. I'd find a different name because as soon as I read the headline and heard it was a club, I thought back to George Carlin's famous routine on politics, where he started off by saying, it's a big club and you ain't in it. <laughs> <laughs> well... Bad on the marketing, but I think there's a a kernel of a good idea there. All right. So so Climate Club could work.
2: Could help. Like Scott said, there's some things that they ought to be able to do that are relatively easy. One of the things that we've been advocating loudly in the Shoal Chair is simply agreeing on how to measure, Mm -hmm. how to measure the amount of embedded carbon. Because if you can't do that between countries, then you have endless arguments over protectionism. And if this gets to border adjustment measures, you know, if the United States were to attempt to tax relatively dirty, dirty, if you will, or more carbon emitting products as they enter the country, one of the arguments you have is people are going to say in the United States, well, your measurement system is fixed so that it favors the uh, domestic industries at the expense of the foreigners. It's really important that we all count the same way, because then you're starting from the same base. And then at that point. I think it's easier to have a discussion about, okay, we're all counting the same way. Now, what do we do about it? So there's some very useful things they could do, talk about how to decarbonize more effectively. And the other thing they have to do from the, the the trade rules standpoint, which would be constructive, is to sort out subsidies and to sort out subsidization, because there's a lot of subsidies that are contrary to WTO rules. And Scholcher chair has maintained that there's a way to do border adjustment measures that is consistent with the rules. You have to be careful in how you design it. And one of the things a club could do is make some progress in trying to work that out so that we're all moving toward the same goal in the same way. And that way you end up avoiding fights over countries being accused of doing things to try to favor their own producers at the expense of the foreigners.
0: You know what club us trade guys should join? Uh, (laughs) I'm afraid to ask. We should join the Hair Club for Men. <laughs> yes. Well, it is the one club that would actually have us as yeah, members. We'd be great members for the Hair Club for Men. And this is not a commercial for the Hair Club for Men, by the way. But it just, you know, just thought as we're talking about the club. And this this is why we have an audio-only podcast.
2: You know. <laughs> I just want to report. The three of
0: us all belong in the Hair Club.
2: I do want uh, to report that just as I'm putting my head down here. My forehead is not as high as yours yet.
0: <laughs> Yeah, No, you're, you're,
1: you have the most hair of any trade guy, I yes.
2: would
0: say. Yeah. A low bar.
2: <laughs> yes,
1: it is, definitely. It's a, it's a fair, fairly easy hurdle for many to clear, not us. <laughs> so. All right. Well, the next thing I wanted to bring up
0: was this so-called Bipartisan Innovation Act. Is this real? Do we really have bipartisanship when it comes to anything these days? I mean, I know we do, and, and, and I shouldn't joke about it because, you know, there are things that are trying to move forward in Congress. This is one of them. The future of the China competition package is looking increasingly uncertain. Are there any updates from you guys on where this stands?
2: Yeah, I've talked to a couple of people recently, and everybody I talk to, and I agree with them, says this is going to happen, not necessarily in the current form, but it's going to happen. It's in the too-big-to-fail category the president wants it the senate leadership wants it the house leadership wants it it's going to happen there's a lot of posturing right now about well if this is in it I'm voting against it or if we don't get don't do it this way I'm going to be unhappy that's what always happens when you're getting closer to the finish line there are signs just in the last 2 weeks that there's st- or 3 weeks i mean they're away this week so not a lot of member level progress but There are signs that they're beginning to get serious about the negotiations. And a lot of things are going to have to get dropped. And they're mostly extraneous things. One of the things that got thrown over the side a couple of weeks ago was a provision about cannabis and banking, which is not really a China competitiveness issue. And I think they've they've decided that they're going to dump that. Biggest tussle remains what to do about the trade provisions. Both sides don't think, the House and the Senate, meaning don't think much of the other's trade title. Both of them have a trade title. If you listen to the Senate, it sounds like, you know, this is all the House. In fact, the Senate has trade provisions, including one that is unpopular in the House, which would mandatorily restart the China tariff exclusion process that ended when Trump left office and which Ambassador Tai restarted for a very small number of items last year. The Senate bill would force a restart of that, which I think the ambassador is not very happy about. The House then loaded it up with a lot of other stuff, renewing trade adjustment assistance, which I think is a great idea. But Republicans don't want to do that unless it's coupled with negotiating authority, trade promotion authority, which it is not in the House bill. So there's a point of contention. There's dumping and subsidy law reform in the House bill. There's a, a provision, we, which we talked about before, on de minimis customs rules that would complicate single small package imports from China. So there's a lot to talk about. You know, at some point, the, the members themselves have to get together and just decide what's going to be in and what's going to be out. None of this stuff is uncompromisable. I had thought that part that was easiest was the money for chips, you know, and the, the pro innovation, mm-hmm. pro industrial policy stuff. Yeah, I mean, isn't that what it's, this is
1: all about? Well, that's how it started.
2: Yeah. And, and there continues to be discussion. Maybe we should just try, drop all the trade stuff and do an expanded CHIPS Act. It turns out that that's a little complicated, too. One of the issues that has come out this week, which always comes out when you're passing out money, is the formula used to pass out the money. And there's basically a debate on, on uh, for R&D money, National Science Foundation research money. Do you give it to the people you've been giving it to before already, which tend to be large academic institutions on the East and West Coast whose names you've heard of and who do most of our research? Or do you spread it out in the Midwest? And do you send some to Wyoming? Do you send some to Kansas? Do you send some to Nebraska? And, you know, the argument, as you can imagine, the representatives from Wyoming, Kansas, and Nebraska think that's a great idea. The representatives from California, New England, and the Mid-Atlantic think, why do you want to pass this out to people that don't have any track record? Why don't you want to give it to the money to the people that are successful? You know, it's a good argument on both sides. And this is turning out to be a more complicated issue than the past. And, and some of the key players are from states that are not getting their share, in their view, right now. So this is going to be contentious. But, you know, what I've been saying for years, when you, when you end up talking about money, there's always a way out. Because it's about the formula. It's about how you spread the money around. And if you're increasing the size of the pie, which this does, you can find a resolution. But the thing that's annoying is how long it's taking. At well, some point, you yeah, just have to sit down and have one, a meeting, you know, and decide all these things. One of the drawbacks here is
1: I look at big bills in Congress like Christmas trees. There will be a Christmas tree. There's a debate over how many ornaments it will have this year. (laughs) Okay. There will be some ornaments that will be taken off. There will be some really sweet ones that will be there on the tree. But Christmas trees need a holiday. They need need an end point. Otherwise, the kitties are really sad. So you got to have the Christmas tree done by Christmas Day. Now, that's what's missing here. We definitely have a tree. We're debating over which ornaments are going to be on and which aren't. But there's no forcing action that they found yet. I've been predicting
2: for six months it's going to get done by the August recess. Yeah, that's, that's your next deadline. With legislation, yeah, I can't say there's always another deadline. Eventually they adjourn, you yeah. know, and then it's over. But I'd look to get this done by the, the end of July, whenever the August recess starts. You yeah. heard it first year, August 1st. This is what we're looking Which at. Which can't
1: come a moment too soon for you people in, in D.C. and for our listeners in D.C. That's right. We're,
0: we're that's ready right. to be done
1: with this. And get everybody out on vacation. Right. Right?
2: They're on vacation. The Hill's on vacation right now, which has slowed the thing down. I think the Hill's always on vacation. Well, sometimes I think, you know, there's an article today in the New York Times daily little thing has an interesting piece, which it's about the Supreme Court. But it's really about democracy and why our court has become so important and so powerful. And the the reason that the, the Times ends up with is because our other institutions aren't working very well. And yeah. things end up going to the court, and they quote Francis Fukuyama saying the country has become a vetocracy. and that is it's become very easy to stop things from happening, and it's much harder to make things happen because we've created so many checkpoints that it's just easy for people to get in the way. And that's certainly true in the legislative process, particularly a legislative process that's cl- so closely divided between the, the two major parties. And how you get beyond that is difficult. My answer is tended to be, you know, you ought to just vote. Take an exception. When Nancy Pelosi says, you know, I don't go to the floor to lose. Well, what that means is you're not going to go to the floor very often because if you don't have the votes, nothing happens. I think it's in the interest of democracy. Just go to the floor. Have people vote. Maybe you'll lose. All right. Then you move on to the next thing. Or maybe you bring up a revised version. You learn something from the vote. But if your pattern is, I'm never going to lose and we're going to keep talking until I get what I want. That's why everything ends up in the Supreme Court. End of rant. Good rant. We'll continue to follow this legislation because
1: it's got important features for American competitiveness. There's many important industries who are paying close attention to it. So this bill has some components that are worth doing. It definitely has some components that need clarity. And let's hope the conference process provides some of that.
0: Okay, well, across the pond on Wednesday, The UK government announced it would extend a package of quotas and tariffs on foreign steel. What are some of the details of this announcement? How is it going to affect us and the rest of the world in this economy?
1: This is principally a safeguard action. What we were talking about from a US standpoint, some of the solar panel cases, it is an industry that's under pressure from fairly traded products and has the safeguard provision is an opportunity for them to have some momentary protection or time-limited protection while they adjust to the new competitive factors. But uh, Bill knows this this law better than I do. Well, think.
2: it's a continuation of duties that are already in effect. So it won't have an immediate impact on the market because people are already paying the tariffs. The question that's come up, which prompted a resignation in the UK, and I have to give the UK credit. But people in the UK who hold public office? They do the right thing if they're unhappy. They resign. They don't subvert. They don't undermine. They don't leak from within, and they don't sit around and complain anonymously to the newspapers. They stand up and quit. And that's what somebody did in this case. Apparently, and and the trade minister and Trevelyan acknowledged this when she announced the decision that this is violates the UK's WTO obligations. But they did it anyway. <laughs> and I've been trying to figure out why it violates their obligations, and I think. The reason is, and I had a long meeting with their chief trade enforcement person, I think in in May, and he was trying to explain this to me. The biggest thing they're doing now is what's called legacy cases. You know, when they left the EU, they had to have their own trade policy. And when they were in the EU, they applied dumping duties and subsidy duties consistent with everybody else in the EU because they all had to do the same thing. Once the UK left, they had to face the question of what do we do now with all these duties that we had been Uh, imposing as part of the EU, we're not there anymore, so we have to decide what we're going to do. And these have become known as legacy cases. They're reviewing each one and deciding, are we going to continue them on their own merit or are we going to do something different? Because now we can do something different. This is one of those. But because it's a safeguard, I think the way the WTO rules work, the UK is supposed to conduct its own investigation if they want to continue that. It's supposed to conduct their own investigation, and it's supposed to determine whether or not their economy is being injured, which would justify continuing the tariffs. As near as I can tell, they did that, but the investigators came to the conclusion that continuing the tariffs wasn't justified, and then the UK did it anyway. I don't have all the facts, and I've got to look into this, but it sounds like in the U.S. context, the case went to the ITC. The ITC found no injury. And then the president imposed tariffs anyway and it sounds like that's what happened which can happen in
1: our system and it often gets us in trouble in the wto so well and it may get
2: the uk in trouble as well in this case so but it, it also demonstrates steel is politically sensitive everywhere, right. not just here. Every country that has a steel industry finds itself in the same boat. And when we do it, we brag about it to our steel industry. And uh, presumably the people who do it rake in votes. When it gets done to us, it's, we're on the other side. It's a little bit different.
0: Well, trade guys, we have great voices, great analysis, but not such great hairlines. Good to be with you. But we have a great
1: holiday coming up. So we'll be celebrating Independence Day and skipping a week. So there's a one-week vacation in
0: podcasts. There you go. Happy 4th of July to all of our listeners. We will be back after the 4th. Indeed.
1: Take care. To our
0: listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.